the ultimate root of morality is a good and holy God who, who, who created the cosmos um, and set up the, the purposes and goals of, of living organisms. Welcome to another episode of the KKD Show podcast. I am with Dr. Paul Netliski. Paul Netliski is the Assistant Director and Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. He is co-author with um, Dr. James Davison Hunter of Science and Good, the book we're going to talk today, The Tragic Quest for the Foundations of Morality. He has a PhD in, uh, in philosophy from the University of Virginia. Dr. Paul Netliski, welcome to the podcast. Karen, thanks so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Right. Yeah. So uh, I'm really uh, interested to talk to you about this book. I, I read your book and it was fascinating. And um, and the reason that I that I thought I ought to ask you about this is because, um, like we mentioned just a while ago, uh, there is a there is a trend in in my own land where um, where people seem to be driven towards a sort of Western conception of morality, while at the same time having the old ideas together it's, it's sort of a it's sort of a mix so so maybe I'd, I'd, I'd like to start asking you about whether morality is objective or subjective how, how do you view this 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 dichotomy uh, if it is one and uh, because that seems to be the place where most people start about whether morality itself is objective or subjective yeah well i think it's objective um at least at its at its root i mean there there's a way in which um, it can seem subjective, uh, which I'll explain. But um, when I think for me, the, the foundation of, of why I think morality is objective is based on my specific uh, ethical beliefs. You know, I think I think human beings are extremely valuable. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think that God created the world. God is good. God cr- um, created uh, a purpose um, for the things that he made. And, and that purpose explains a great deal about what things are and, and, um, why they are the way they are. And so along with that comes, uh, purpose, uh, that organisms are supposed to fulfill. And furthermore, um, God gave human beings, uh, reason and rationality. You know, we can think about what we do. We, we have, we have, uh, some measure of free will. And so we can choose to follow God's way. Um, the way that God, the, the order that God put into the universe, or we can choose not to. And that, um, and so that I think is the, is the root of why I think it's objective, but even from, from a non, you know, like even from not from the perspective of a particular religion, I, I think there's something accessible, uh, something visible, discernible about the value of human beings that everyone is able to, to recognize. They, they may deny that they see it, but I think that they do, um, it can be easier or harder based on on who you spend time with and your and your, and your surrounding culture, but uh, I think that the objectivity of morality is discernible, even apart from Christianity or a particular religious stance. I mean, I think one way to see this, I think, is not always, but most of the time, like in movies that that everybody watches, the morality that's presupposed is objective. You know, there something bad is happening to a character or there's a danger or a threat and the narrative um, 
presupposes. Yeah. Yeah. You're supposed to feel about a certain way. It's not like, oh, well, that's just what they think. I mean, if, you know, there are some things in the world that are subjective, you know, if they made a movie where uh, somebody's favorite ice cream is strawberry and, and their Mm -hmm. ice cream store wasn't going to have any more strawberry ice cream, you just, you couldn't, you couldn't care too much. You know, you might get up and walk out of the theater. Um, So I, I think, you know, there, there are little signs and indicators that really everybody resonates with objective morality, even if they've talked themselves into, into saying they don't believe it. Um, and well, I think, you know, Christianity explains that well, but you don't have to be a Christian to see that. So that's why, I guess, why I think it's objective. I mean, just briefly, there are things about it that can seem subjective based on um, cultural expectations for, for how, uh, different duties or responsibilities or good things are to be um, acted towards. So, you know, um, well, <laughs> where I live uh, in Virginia, at least before before COVID-19, when you first meet somebody, you're expected to shake their hand. And if, you know, if someone put their hand out and you didn't shake it, that would be offensive. And, and it's, you know, um, it's often wrong to treat people without respect and to offend them. So that, that would be the objective component. But the fact that that is expressing itself through a handshake, that varies with the culture. There are plenty of cultures where you don't shake hands. Um, and so that seems subjective, but it's but it's being it's still trying to get at this objective root, which is uh, respect for other persons. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's helpful, but uh, yeah, tell no, me what yeah, you think. Yeah, no, yeah, that, that is that is. And um, and that is that, that is objectivity to morality. The, the reason I ask that is because. It's because you see a lot of uh, people, right, at least in, in the present culture, they seem to want morality to be subjective because if it is subjective or if you can at least argue that it is subjective, then you don't necessarily have to uh, have to deal with uh, a transcendent reality, so to speak. You can you can use the the apparent subjectivity of morality to to kind of go with the flow i guess and um that's why i asked that question in the first place and um uh, paul netlisky's book is in fact the uh, the starting of the book is the tragic quest for the foundations of morality so i i guess uh, why tragic yeah you know, that's a good question i i think we, we say tragic because in the book we're we're looking at this search for how to know know what is right and wrong and on what basis to order society. We're looking at at it as a story um, that unfolds starting from the beginning of the, of what we might call the modern era in the West, the scientific revolution, I guess you could say. The um, 1500s and the 1600s, would that be the uh, era? Sure. Yeah. You know, like, like with most historical periods. Yeah. You kind of just did the end of the Renaissance. I mean, I think um, the key, some of the key, uh, uh, starting points for the period we're talking about are the decline of um, Catholic Aristotelian theology as sort of the basic understanding of the world, uh, and also because of the Protestant Reformation and um, the way local nations responded to that, you know, it caused a kind of a huge splintering. Countries broke apart, and uh, new new forms of worship appeared. And the the result of that was the uh, the opportunity for people and groups and nations to disagree with each other. Um, and I, you know, 
I am a Protestant. I think it had to happen, but that doesn't mean that every consequence of it was good. And um, the result of, of new groups of people emerging who did not have the, the, exactly the same moral and metaphysical and theological beliefs led to a new kind of new problem. I mean, pluralism has shown up in other places at other times, but it just really intensified in Europe, uh, you know, kind of early 1500s um, and on into the 1600s and led to huge, you know, terribly bloody wars between rival political powers who said that they belonged to different religions. And that became a big problem in sort of the public mind. You know, people who thought about such things were worried, well, how can we agree? How can we stop these terrible wars? What can be the, how can we find agreement that can unite instead of divide to stop this bloodshed? Um, at the same time, the scientific revolution was in full, full flower and people were feeling very optimistic about science and its ability to both explain reality, but also maybe tell us about things that we, about things in new ways. Um, it's not that the, the medievals didn't think we could know about morality. They just, they went about it through a more philosophical and theological way. But, but suddenly, you know, <clears throat> there's this public kind of like pan-European desire to find a way to, to morally unite uh, people to, to prevent war. And at the same time, this new instrument, this new method for figuring out truth in science. And so what seems to happen is many people started trying that path. Like, oh, let's, let's use science to tell us about Tell us about right and wrong. Um, why is it tragic? I think it's tragic because you know what what makes a story tragic. I think is when there is some kind of objective that the characters have that that is good, but something prevents them from fulfilling it. And and you know James and I both think it would be great if we could overcome the the violence that sometimes results from pluralism. You know that that doesn't that doesn't seem good. It'd be great if we could be united. Um, both in our nation and, and you know, across the world and knowing what is right and wrong and good and bad and, and that wars would cease. This is, this is a good goal, but uh, trying to achieve this by figuring out the answer with, with science in a way that you could demonstrate and prove to other people, that cannot work. And that's, that's the failure that makes it part of what makes it a tragedy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and this, is, this is why I, I, I stopped at the word science when I read the book because um, the the idea of science that we have is that it is it is a purely descriptive discipline it it cannot prescribe something or, or at least not in the sense in which we think of morality and when i read through your book there was this chapter in which you mentioned three levels level one findings and level two and level three wherein there is at least it seems inconceivable to me. I don't know if it's possible, but it seems inconceivable that level one findings, which which I guess are, 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 are whether science can tell us about what is right and what is wrong, objectively what is right and what's wrong. And, and that's almost impossible, it seems to me, to be the case. And that's that's what you argue there as well. Level two would be the case in which you can judge something and say this particular moral doctrine is is, is wrong. Or, or, or in some cases, you might be able to say that that particular theory is wrong. You're not exactly uh, creating a, a moral standard. You, you can't uh, make people prescribe to it, but at least you can show that some particular moral doctrine is, is, is wrong. Am I getting yeah. that right? And then the Basically, level, yeah. Yeah, and then the level three findings would be descriptions of what morality is. And 
uh, that seems to me something that science is capable of. It seems to me to be that that's how you 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 distinguish these three, and and I find that very helpful. But here's the thing: uh, wouldn't any person who started with science or the uh, with a scientific mindset have at the back of his mind that since this is a descriptive discipline, why why do I even need to start to use it to prescribe something when I know that this is this is purely a descriptive discipline. This is used to describe patterns in the world and astronomical details and all of that and, and not to prescribe something, something especially so so intrinsic as morality. Why, why would someone think that way, I guess? That's a great question. I mean, I, I, can, only, I can only speculate. Um, it's probably different for different people. Um, I, I went to a, a conference a few months ago that was designed to gather together um, some of the leading uh, moral psychologists uh, working in the field today. And I was talking with, with one of them who, who gave, this one moral psychologist gave a presentation that the name of the presentation was something like uh, the developmental origins of morality or something like that. But the talk was just about, it was centered around these experiments that show that very young children will um, sometimes like if an adult drops a pen or a toy, the young child will go over and pick up the pen or the toy and hand it back to the adult. And this was taken as, a, as, a, as an indicator of like the beginnings of morality. And, and during the lunch break, I was saying, you know, it just doesn't seem clear to me that that is really about morality. I mean, this is, it's a, something that's important for social life. You know, it's cooperation. The child is trying to cooperate with, with what he thinks the intentions of the, of the adult are, but, um, you know, you can cooperate with great evil, you know, what if the adult is in the process of, you know, administering a lethal injection to someone for no good reason and the child helps with that? It's, it's not moral. It's just something in the realm of the social. And this, um, this psychologist, this uh, moral psychologist, she agreed. She's like, yeah, that's right. And she's like, well, maybe, maybe morality isn't the best title. And I just, I, it, it was so casual. I mean, I, and I, I couldn't believe that she was so re willing to say, yeah, maybe it's not really about morality at all. And so I don't really know what to make of that. I think maybe many people who work on the science of morality, certainly not all, but, but many of them, I think, they just haven't thought about it very hard. You know, you, to you and to me, it seems very clear, like, well, there's just a, you know, the, the nature of morality is such that, I mean, how could you study it with empirical methods? Like, it's just not the sort of thing that it just wouldn't work. But that's, I think that's a philosophical thought that a lot of, a lot of scientists um, and maybe sometimes even philosophers don't have. They don't recognize that distinction. And I think it's easy, I think, for, for people to, to fall into thinking, oh, well, science is the only sure way of knowing about the world. So it must be able to tell us about morality if morality is real. So I don't know if that's helpful. That's, that's my best guess about part of what's happening. Yeah, yeah. No, that's helpful. And 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 that makes me think because yeah that's the first question but but in the same realm why 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 would one think that anyone can bridge the is ought gap i've i've tried to wrap my mind around it i've never been able to come up with an explanation obviously i'm not a philosopher or a psychologist so so uh, there are way better people who might be able to but still how can a person br bridge the is ought gap i guess which which is what hume called it the um the um, sort gap and i and i keep wondering as to um e even if you find something that is the case and i guess human flourishing is something that 
people ought to desire. And the ought comes in there and demolishes the whole thing because why on earth should someone ought? And I, and I, and I keep coming back to that because why ought? And, and I guess y you mentioned that, but, I, but I'd like you to expand on that because uh, can science in any way bridge the ESOT gap? Or is that, is that a full stream? Is that a, is that a pipe dream? Is that, is that ever possible? I don't think it can. I mean, I think, uh, and, I, and I think the reason is just that, um, you know, people mean many things by science, but, but I, the way we, we mean it in our book and the way I think it's most helpful to think about it for this conversation is it's a way of knowing about the world that's closely tied to empirical methods. So like Empiricism. the five senses, yeah, the you know, five senses, you know, um, gathering information in a way that you can show to someone else, at least in principle. You know, nobody has seen all the scientific experiments that give us a scientific picture of reality, but, but you know, the, the experiments have been done and we can conceptually understand how it could work. And, and that can persuade people. Um, the trouble is that, the, I mean, the truth is, is that not everything that is real can be studied in that way. Not everything that's real can be, can be d discovered by the senses and can be you know, picked up and shown to someone else. And morality is one of those things. We, we're all in contact with, with good things. We all experience uh, the force of, of, of duty and responsibility of obligation, uh, but we can't, we can't sort of, you know, grab a piece of it and show someone. Um, yeah. We can tell stories that make it evident for people who don't want to see it. Uh, and we can point, we can, we can say, you can, we can say things like, um, oh, like a, like a young, young child, look how precious she is. And people who are, you know, who are not, <laughs> who are not philosophers will, will agree. Uh, but if someone wants to disagree, you're like, oh, really? Why is she precious? Show me the preciousness. Point to yeah. the preciousness that's different from, you know, this 30-pound piece of meat or whatever. And you can't, it's very hard to pick that out. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, I think, you know, it, it's real. It's just hard to individuate the way we individuate empirical yeah. properties. So I, I don't think there is any way that science can tell us about good and bad and right or wrong. I mean, I think we say some of this in the book. The closest it can get is, or, or one way it can it can be involved in sort of the the, the normative or the, the ethical or the moral is, once we know something moral, something ethical, something good, something we should do, science of course can play a role in um, telling us how we can how we can do that thing, how we can achieve some end. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that's not moral because you can have evil ends, you can have amoral ends, but but it can, but you know if you if there's a, if you have a neighbor who is sick and you want to help them, that's a good thing to do usually. And, and uh, science can play a role there. Like, oh, you know, I can In the them a meal or something. Of, of helping them. Yeah. Yeah. But the underlying foundation of wanting to help them or the fact that you ought to help them is still above science. It, it, it's, it's, I guess, philosophical. Yeah. And there, you know, one, one point that's related here that I think is very important that I, um, we talk a little bit about in the book, but I, it keeps coming up when I talk to people about this issue. I, I wonder if we should have said more about it. The the is up problem in the way that it's been talked about through the like intellectual history. Sometimes people will say there's a gap between is and ought, and there's there's two ways you can understand that. Um, if you just take like the way it's said, there's a gap between is and ought. That's very bad. That's not true. 
I mean, you know, if you imagine like here are all the is's over here, here's what is the case, here's what is true. And there's a gap between that and what should be and what and what is good. That would be terrible. That would mean that what is, you know, claims about what is good and what we should do are not a part of what's true. And that's that's not that's false. I mean, that would be a non-objective view of morality. So I but I think that the correct idea is that um, you have to find out about about ethics and morality on their own terms. Uh, you can't get from you can't get from claims that don't involve morality already to claims about morality. Like you have to kind of start with morality itself. I mean, I think you one example presuppose might be, a moral standard or something moral before you even start to talk about this. Or I think it um, it's actually it's. It's a common thing, not just for morality, but um, so think about uh, the experience of color. Color is like this. So, there, you know, you could you could be like, let's say someone is born blind and you're talking to them. Um, you could tell them many things about the world. They can learn many things about the world, but they will never be able to know what color is like unless they experience it somehow. Maybe blind people can see color in dreams. I don't know. But unless they have some kind of experience of color, there's no other path to them knowing what it, what red looks like or yellow, and the same is true for morality. You have to you have to um, learn about it on its own terms, and then then you can connect it with other things. But you can't learn about it apart from itself. Does that make sense? Right. Does yeah. Make- yeah. And 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 to add to that, or maybe to to go on from there. Um, when people talk about science and trying and trying to use it as as this purely uh, empirical discipline to find out about the origins of morality i wonder because science itself cannot be in a vacuum because it has uh, it, it it takes in laws of mathematics it takes in certain rules of logic and i guess uh, it, it it to a degree to an extent it, it uses uniformity in nature and all of those sorts of things and and those cannot those cannot at least seem to be to be uh, explained in empirical terms. So, ah, ah. so how is it then that you try to use a method that uses empiricism to describe the origins of morality when the method itself cannot stand on its own? It it cannot stand in a vacuum. There are these things that that uh, that encompass it, and those things uh, uh, sort of seem to me to be uh, outside of the realm of of that which science can explain. It seems to me to be transcendental uh, to 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 use those terms, but. How 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 did that go? No, that you're. I think you're exactly right. Um, it's, a, it's a good question. Let me let me think for a second. I think so. You know, not everyone, um, as I, I'm sure you know, like you know, not every scientist is a, an empiricist, um, and not every person who thinks that science can answer moral and ethical questions is an empiricist. I think plenty of them who think that you know you can get. Um, oughts from non-oughts and not from an is would say, sure, not everything is empirical, but the stuff that that is genuine, the real ways of knowing about the world that are not empirical are different from are different from what uh, it would be like if we could know about ethics or morality apart from science. So they would say like there's a difference between logic, which is not empirical, and mathematics, which is not empirical, and and morality, such that we can trust our knowledge of logic and mathematics. It's um, even though it's not empirical, there's a huge amount of intersubjective agreement between people. Um, it's a fascinating thing to me. I think it's philosophers of mathematics and epistemologists, epistemologists of math study this, and it's really inter- interesting. Like 
it's not empirical, but there's a lot of agreement throughout you know, the, the discipline of mathematics all over the world. There are some areas of disagreement, but it's, it's almost everybody agrees, it's objective. Um, it's basically true for logic, although there, there's more disagreement there, I think. So I think plenty of people who like the science of morality would say, yeah, um, I'm not an empiricist because I think you can know things about logic and mathematics, not from, not from science, but that's where I draw the line. When you go past logic and, and mathematics into the, into the fuzzy world of metaphysics and, and morality and let alone theology, you know, that's yeah, just pe yeah. people indulging in fantasies unless we can somehow tie it back to the science or math or logic. So I, that's what I think is going on. There are, there are some really hardcore empiricists out there. Mostly they're in philosophy and they have a hard time. They're, one of the, when I was in grad school in philosophy, one of the books that made the biggest impression on me made the exact argument that you just made. Um, I actually forget what it's called. It's by a guy named Lawrence Bonjour. And the title has, I think, the word empiricism in it. But he's, he basically says, like, you can't be an empiricist because even the scientific method requires you to use logic and mathematics. So how do you explain it? So it, I think it's a good argument. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, and and I find that fascinating, and 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 thank you for the response because because it made me think, and um, yeah, so 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 the applicability of these laws to physical things also makes you wonder mm, because the applicability of certain moral laws to I guess our, our physical interactions are also you you may you might be able to draw a parallel there, but yeah, um, talking about that and and the way in which uh, our science goes about dealing with this, I guess the um, scientists who might come really close to morality or the way in which we think about morality might be the, ne the neuroscientists or, or, or those who engage in those sciences. W would that be right? Would they be the ones who might be able to understand um, how morality works in, in human minds better than most? Um... Oh, the neuroscientists. Um, I don't see how. I mean, it, it's an interest. It's a clear, you know, I think it's, you have to acknowledge it's an interesting field. Um, Joshua Green, who we talk about in the book, you know, he's done yeah. some interesting things showing that it, it might be true that th there are different, cat well, it is true there are different categories of moral judgments. You know, there are judgments about um, good and bad consequences, and there are judgments about that are more immediate. And, you know, like this is this is the wrong thing to do, or this is good. There is a distinction there philosophically, conceptually, and he might he might have, have shown that you think about these things, you process these things in different parts of your brain. That's interesting. Why is that interesting? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think it tells us anything about what's right and wrong. Um, oh, the, oh, you know, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. His, his argument, he has to tie it into a lot of, you know, hardcore philosophy and and it's a very speculative um, evolutionary psychology in order to generate from that data something something that is interesting for morality itself. You know, he winds up saying, oh, the intuitive moral judgments about what's right and wrong or good and bad, these are holdovers from an earlier point in human a evolution. Age. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is where people wind up disagreeing with each other. But if we could just stop stop relying on those <laughs> kinds of moral judgments and just focus on you know the running utilitarian crunching. sense 
Yeah, yeah. Thinking about the consequences of things like that's just calculation. Everybody can agree on that. We can use science and technology. Then we can all agree. Um, I mean, the hard thing for me, like the, one of the first questions is, yeah, but when you're doing the calculative stuff, you're still relying on a, a prior notion of um, good and bad because you have good to know well, what are the good con- exactly. Yeah, what are the good consequences? The- that's right. And so if you if you try to totally not rely on intuitive judgments, then on what basis will you say that an outcome is good or bad when you're trying to figure it out through, you know, prediction or calculation or something? So, I, I mean, again, I, I don't in any way want to demean the work of neuroscience. It's the brain is, is the part of the physical world most closely connected with our mind. And it's a mysterious point of connection. And we should know as much about it as we can. I just have seen no reason, no reason at all to think that studying that will tell us anything about morality itself or, or what's good and bad. Uh, I, I love the way you guys explain that in the book, because uh, at a superficial level, when I, when I heard this argument from Joshua Green, uh, from somewhere else, I don't, I don't know where I heard it from or read it from maybe, but about the, um, I guess he used uh, the old classic trolley experiment in, in which, uh, in which you've got the five guys. And, uh, uh, and I love the way you explain it because when I heard the argument first, it seemed just like, oh yeah, it seemed it, it, it makes a lot of sense. So in this case, you use your um, your deontological perspective, I guess that's that's the term for it. Uh, uh, and in the other case, you, you you use a more calculated approach to to it. And I guess he call they call it consequentialism. Is that sure? It? Yeah. So and um and and at, at first glance it seemed to make a lot of sense to me and it seemed to make me think oh, oh all right so so this this might make this might help us all get along together and then i read your book and I, and i and i and i realized that no hold on a second there, there seems to be a lot of things that are assumed here and and a whole lot of things that are going on in the background that 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 might not make this as as simple and straightforward as he seems to think it is so yeah, yeah. i just um one thing, I, I can't remember this made it way, its way into the book, but when James and I were writing the book, when we got to this section, James made some comment when we were discussing it. It was something like, <laughs> imagine Joshua Green talking to a devout uh, Muslim who, who believes in Sharia law, saying like, um, well, you just need to give up Sharia law because it's not best for everyone. You know, it, 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 impinges, it infringes on the freedom of the people who live under it. You know, it, it forces women to dress in a certain way, which denies them their freedom to express themselves. It's like you, you're assuming so much about what actually is good and bad. It would never, ever work. It, and, but he, you know, Joshua Green is trying to, to build this utopian theory that can enable yeah. everyone in the world to agree. It, and he just pointed out like this, there's there's no chance of this practically working. It's, yeah, he, the, he can the, only, the argument. yeah, he can only, people will only even think it, it might work if they're living in, you know, the an US. urban, secular, West, yeah, Western environment <laughs> yeah. where yeah. they're, they, they just, they only live around other people who roughly see the world as they do. And they're not thinking about the diversity of moral opinion out there. Um, so because no, I agree. It's huge. Yeah. 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 And, and that then, and your explanation of it in the book was, was really fascinating and it, and, it, and it made me think a lot. So, yeah. So that's, that's one way in which neuroscience, well, is, is trying to uh, establish some sense of the foundations of morality. Not really a, a successful quest as we see, but still they're trying to achieve something in that regard. And um, and the other person that I that I read about was this guy named uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, heard of him, uh, uh, 
I'm not exactly sure you mentioned it. Uh, a guy called Tomasello um, <laughs> and the um, social intelligence hypothesis that that um, humans have evolved to be this socially intelligent creatures, sort of ultra-social, if you will. And there is this ultra-sociality that, that helps us that in, a, in our moral behavior as opposed to the uh, uh, beha social behavior of the uh, apes, which are not all that socially intelligent. Because while they cooperate, humans seem to have developed a, an ultra-social behavior. Now, I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you mentioned the guy in the book, but how do you view people who... Uh, these are, I guess, evolutionary psychologists who use the uh, arguments about mm, social interactions and people evolving through these uh, uh, millennia-long process and finally reaching this, this, this place in which we are now awesome in our model <laughs> claims, I guess. Can you, can you spell his last name? Uh, um, P-O-M-A-S-C-E-L-L-O. Uh, -L -L I guess that's the name. Oh, Tomasello, yeah. Um, yeah, Michael Tomasello, yeah. Yeah, I... I I don't know if we cite him. I have seen some of his stuff. Um, it sounds like this hypothesis is something like um, trying to explain how morality and knowledge of morality could be an adaptive feature. Is that is that right? Is it, yeah, is an it, exactly. An adaptive feature. And yeah, yeah, because, oh, sorry, but just, just to make the argument clear uh, for those of us who are watching, it seems to me to be the case that almost every single evolutionary psychologist uses uh, some form of the adapt adaptability of something. So, so we've, we've come in and we've evolved and now we've got these uh, model uh, senses within us, but it only explains, even if it does explain, the origins of it. It doesn't explain... Uh, why we we ought to follow it or, or or any of that matter it just explains that we've somehow reached this particular point in time where these moral uh, values are are good. Although why yeah. why they are good and all of that is still up in the air, I guess. Up for grabs. No, I think that's right. I mean, I on this on this specific hypothesis, I guess I I would need a lot more convincing. I mean. I, I do think that if people knew in a pretty detailed way what they ought to do, um, how they ought to act toward other people, and they and people followed that, that would be. I guess it's hard for me to see how it's adaptive. Um, when you think about people living together, which they do pretty much everywhere. It's so, there's so much variation. Um, there's so much evil mixed in with the good. There's, there's so much uh, misbehavior of people toward other people. Yeah. And yeah. we still live together. We're attracted to each other. Nature um, is red in tooth and claw. Nature is red in tooth and claw. We, and we, you know, it's, it's easier for us to survive when we live together, but that doesn't tell us anything about what's good or bad. Um, I don't know. I, it, this this kind of argument, it is out there. Um, I don't remember. I don't think we talk about it in the book, but I guess they would have to. They would have to show that. Do knowing and doing what is right is good for the survival of the species, and I guess my thought is, sometimes that will be true, and sometimes that will not be true. And I, they, I, I don't know. It depends on how they cash that out. I mean, I think 
there are tons of cases you can think of. A classic one to me is the lifeboat scenario that people, philosophers talk about sometimes. You know, you're, you're with other people on a, on a ship, the ship sinks. And so like five people wind up in a boat in the middle of the, of the Pacific Ocean, thousands of miles from land, no way to communicate. You're, you run out of food. You're collecting rainwater to survive. Finally, um, you realize you have to eat somebody else on the boat if you're going to survive. Oh, What's yeah, the right yeah, thing I've heard to... of this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the right thing to do there is you should all starve to death together. That's the right thing to do. You shouldn't kill one of them and eat yeah. so that four can yeah. survive. Um, yeah. And so, I, I mean, that's, that's what I think what morality says there. That doesn't help you survive. That, no, that doesn't. It doesn't. Um, there is a connection between morality and survival. I mean, I, like I said at the very beginning, you know, I think the ultimate root of morality is uh, a good and holy God who, who, who created the cosmos um, and set up the, the purposes and goals of, of living organisms so that things might live. Uh, but survival isn't guaranteed. And in fact, um, yeah. as a result of, you know, you, human sin, human um, evil acts, all humans will die uh, yeah, as yeah. punishment. And so even, even in the, the cosmos, that we, the order that God has set up, there are things that are more important than, than earthly life is a, is a crucial part of morality. And according to God's judgment, um, all of us have to die, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, as yeah. a result of that. So, and of course, that's not going to enter into Thomas Sell's argument, but, but I, you know, I think <laughs> no. it is, it's good, it's good to keep your, keep your hand on, well, what, what really is the case about in terms of right and wrong? Um, no, I, yeah, I, I would like to think more about that, but that's, that's my kind of yeah, immediate yeah, take. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear what you think too about that hypothesis. Yeah, and this is what I think because um, I agree with you on the whole. And um, maybe I, uh, I think about what uh, Alvin Plantinga says uh, about about evolution and naturalism. Because when he talks about evolution and naturalism, he he talks about uh, evolutionary naturalism being sort of uh, false, I guess. Because how can survival lead to truth directed beliefs? Mm -hmm. And I've always wondered that because uh, why 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 should you have to have True beliefs. You only need to have beliefs that help you survive, right? So, so that's that's the major goal. What on earth <laughs> does truth have to do with anything? And uh, I guess Patricia Churchland uses uses truth, whatever that is, takes the hindmost. I think that was the last part of her quote. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the quote: "The principal chore of brains is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive." Improvements in sensory motor control confer an evolutionary advantage. A fancier style of representing the world uh, is advantageous as long as it enhances the organism's chance for survival. Truth, whatever that is, takes the hindmost. That's what Churchill and um, and I guess that's right, right? I mean, truth, whatever that is, and and I and I find the concept of truth bewildering in, in an evolutionary perspective, at least an evolutionary naturalistic perspective. So why talk about morality when you can't even have a justification for truth? And I guess that was Darwin's doubt as well in, in, some, in some sense. Yeah, I mean, I the perspective that Churchland and others who, who have similar views are coming from, I just think is it's taken them many, many years to talk themselves into this. I think it's, it's so preposterous. Um, when you think about the daily activities of a human being, so much of it is bound up with with the truth and trying to know what the truth is. Um, we care what other people think about us. 
We care what our loved ones are doing. Um, we, we are so, so curious about reality in ways that, that far, far outstrip what's necessary for survival. Um, I think you have, to, you have to talk yourself into thinking of an imaginary human being who isn't at all like real human beings in order for, yeah. for Churchland's account to make sense. I mean, truth and knowing the truth is so central to, to human interests and human values that uh, if you try to, to tell a story about what human beings are like and how we got here, that makes, that puts truth in the hindmost, that makes truth yeah. not an essential part of the story, you've, you've just given a very bad explanation. You've, you've described like an ape that looks like a human being, but is not a human being. Um, I mean, even think, I mean, it's, it's, think about Patricia Churchland spending thousands of hours writing these books, trying to persuade us what is true about the world. I mean, even her own project is, it's hard to understand why she would pursue it if, if her view is correct about the world. Um, yeah, because why convince anyone of anything at that point? Right. It, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's, wh why does it matter to her? If she's right, why would she be confident that we could figure it out? How, you know, at, at a more meta level, like, it would, if she was, if her view is right, it would be an unbelievable coincidence that we can know what's true about the world, that we can even have knowledge. And yet we do. That's a, that's a strange fact that cries out for explanation. And that that's a miracle in itself, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, that maybe the, maybe one of the best books I've read in the last five years, and you may have read it too, is uh, Thomas Nagel's Mind and Cosmos. Oh uh, yeah. Mind and Cosmos. I love it. Yeah. He's making yeah. points just like that saying, you know, look, there are these really crucial aspects of human beings that would be these just unbelievable coincidences if the, the Darwinian naturalist view is correct. Yeah. If the neo-Darwinian outlook is right, then, then there are a whole lot of coincidences that you cannot explain. That's so true. And and I guess uh, the the only person who seems to stand out from this is Sam Harris, who seems to uh, have some sense of an idea of moral realism, that, that there are objective truths out there. He seems to keep on saying that, and I guess he does say that in his book, The Moral Landscape. But I wonder how how does how does moral realism work in his framework? How does that work in his worldview? Because he does seem to be a naturalist. Otherwise, is that why, why you're asking? Like it seems like yeah, there would be yeah, attention. Yeah, because yeah, because assuming that his worldview is naturalism, and, and I think that is, although uh, they seem to have well, atheists have have a lot of worldviews, and I'm not going to assume he has one, but. Ultimately, he doesn't ascribe to any theistic conception of the universe. So, so for the sake of argument, let's just assume naturalism. And with that as an assumption, how how what does how, how does he ascribe to moral realism? That's that's something that yeah. always confuses. So, I'm going to tell you what I think because um, I, I followed him over the years. You know, he I think his book was one of the first books that that we read when we were working on science of the good. Um, and he's maybe the most public oh, face of that just question. To just just to add this and I'm, uh, and I'm sorry for interrupting I won't oh, no. but um this this book is also pretty popular here uh, among the books uh, from the new atheists that are popular in Kerala one of them is the moral landscape and the other is Richard Dawkins the god delusion okay these are yeah these are the books that are popular here and that the the yuktivadis that I mentioned earlier the uh, the rationalists if you will who, who love these books and uh, these are the foundations of of the urban technocratic society that we are now in uh, interesting okay yeah well so yeah that's um well i'm glad we're talking uh, 
Sam, so Sam Harris is interesting, as you said, for, for a number of reasons, because he's different. Um, we haven't really talked about moral nihilism yet. I mean, I think in almost every case, the philosophers who, who talk as though you can figure out um, what we ought to do from science, they, they don't actually believe in morality. I'm just this is going to help the answer to your, the, the following discussion that comes from your question. Um, they use the language of morality. They use moral terms like ought and good and evil and so forth. But, um, but the, the philosophers who are working here, they're pretty consistent. They realize, oh, you know, according to my view, my, my reductive naturalist view, there isn't anything in reality that, that could be a, a, an objective value. You know, there couldn't be any such thing as uh, a, a normative obligation to do something, to care for someone or something like that. That doesn't make sense. How could you build that out of the tiny physical properties that build up reality? You know, forces and, and gravity and yeah. these kinds of things. Um, but, but, but because they are humans, they, they find it very useful to use those terms. And so they, when they say, like, here's how science can tell us how to live, what, what they really mean is we have, th we have things that we as individuals or we as a society want to do. We have goals. And these goals, they're amoral because they don't think morality is real. But, um, but we use the term good for our goals, like, oh, I want to make a million dollars or whatever. And so we, we, we want that. And so people often fall into saying that whatever they want is good. And science and technology can help us achieve our goals. And so that's really what mo so many of the, who we call the new moral scientists, that's really what yeah. they mean. Um, so there's, there's the genuine like academic inquiry question, like can science tell us about good and bad? No, it can't. But many of the people who say that it can, they actually agree with that conceptual point that you and I made earlier, but that, you know, how could empirical methods tell us about value or duty? They would agree with that distinction. Then they would say, yeah, but we just mean something different by good. Joshua Green is very clear about this in his dissertation. I don't know if it's been published yet, but it really explains so much about his um, his subsequent work. He's very clear, like, we just have to change the, agree to change the meanings of moral terms. And it's in terms of getting what we want instead of yeah. an independent realm of good and bad. Um, so coming back to Harris, Harris is the one, the one philosopher, the one new moral scientist who seems to be different. I mean, he's very clear, like, no, he's like, I, I think some things are objectively good. You know, that's sort of the whole part of the whole point of his book. That yeah, book, yeah. The Moral Landscape, the first like third of it, I think is great. You know, he's arguing for objective morality and yeah, gives some is. good arguments. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, he goes on to try to say, and we can learn about this in the same way we can learn about other things using, you know, neuroscience or what have you. Here's what I think happened. His, the beginning of his um, intellectual life, he was in neuroscience, um, or maybe he was a, doing philosophy as an undergrad, but when he became a professional, his roots were in science. And I think he still didn't understand uh, the philosophical points he was talking about very well. And in fact, he's actually clear about that, that he does it in this book. There are footnotes where he says, you know, like he kind of dismisses all of philosophical literature as being arguing over, you know, trivial points. I, much of it is, I agree, but he hadn't read enough of it. Um, Angels on a bin, thanks. Yeah, he didn't really understand what he was talking about. And I think um, he has not come out and said that, but I think that right, he knows right. it because he doesn't seem to want to talk about that earlier project as much. And 
some good friends of his. I don't know if you know this physicist, Sean Carroll. Oh, yeah. Um, who's, the um, quantum physicist. Yeah. Um, there's a, there was a discussion or a debate that, that Sean Carroll and Sam Harris did maybe three years ago where Carroll makes the same point. He's like, um, no, I mean, if morality is objective, you, you can't figure it out scientifically. Like what you're trying to do in, in the moral landscape in this, like the second half of it, it can't work. And Harris does not have a good response. You know, Carol, like, and you know, it's still Harris doesn't say, you're right, I'm wrong, it's a failed project. But it seems like he, I, it seems that he is appreciating that he wasn't right in that book and he's moved on to other things. And I think this is a dangerous game, but you know, he, he is a public figure. He yeah. does not make his living from the typical way that academics do by getting some, you know, job as a teacher or a researcher and then publishing books and his compensation is tied to that. It's a very different model for him. You know, he, he has a podcast that thousands of hundreds of thousands of people listen to and he gives right. talks that yeah. people pay to yeah. come see. So it, it would be very bad for his brand for him to say, I was wrong about this. So yeah. I think yeah. there, this is speculation, but I think, I think he knows it, but I think he, he, it's the consequences are too grave for him to admit it. Um, maybe I'm wrong. But that's, that's my suspicion. Yeah, it, it, a lot of it seems to me to be similar to how Lawrence Krauss talks about nothing <laughs> in, in his book, The Universe from Nothing. Yeah. Because, yeah, uh, that's another book that's confused me. Uh, a great, a brilliant man, but nothing. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've still I've still not got, gotten over his, his idea of nothing, which Have you um, no end. No, I agree. That That's that's an even more egregious case of, of someone talking about something they don't understand. Uh, there's a an amazing... And pretty brief review of that book by oh yeah the new york times was it in the new york times or by david Thomas? albert is it i can't remember oh yeah it was published. oh yeah yeah david albert the uh, the philosopher physicist uh yes yeah and uh i mean that is just one of the best i mean it's 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 touching it's amusing and it just exactly pinpoints the huge mistake at the core of Krauss's book it's a one of the best book reviews i've ever read Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I. I. remember that. I remember reading that when I first encountered this book, and I was wondering, what's nothing? And I. And I kept hearing this. This argument. Nothing is what rocks dream of, and. And it clearly wasn't what rocks dreams of in his book. So yeah, that's uh, that's that's one point that I, that I was fascinated by. And and all of these, mm, I guess, new atheists and moral scientists, seem to want to define certain terms that, um, in in iffy ways to to, to 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 make that point, but yeah. But coming back to the idea of of of, of preferences and um, our tastes, for example, because ultimately it seems to me to come to the point of taste. Morality seems to me to be come to to come to the point of, of I I kind of feel like this is right. That seems to me to be how a lot of people in Western society and increasingly so in the East see morality. Mm, uh, if if divorced from a transcendent perspective, then it seems to me that. It's what I feel is right. It's 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 preferences more than anything else, and um, I guess is that's what drives a lot of the new atheist arguments because they want it to be preferences, but they can't just place it there because you can't say it's all preference and leave it there. So that I guess that's what makes them write these books and attach some sort of scientific uh, background to these ideas because ultimately it's still preferences. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think um, a lot of the new atheists, 
I mean, most of the new atheists, uh, they kind of have one foot in serious academic work and the other foot in the, the public eye. Um, Pop culture. Yeah, popular culture. And, and uh, you know, like Sam Harris, at least early in his career, this is probably true for Dawkins too. I, I've read less, less of Dawkins. Um, I think sometimes they, they don't, they don't really understand morality well enough to, to see tensions in their own view because, because very often the new atheist line, it's a very immoral view. It's something like your big motivation for being a new atheist is um, a responsibility to believe what is true and stop believing in childish fantasies. Oh, and yeah. Um, yeah. you need to understand the way the world really is by studying science and logic and um, stop believing in dangerous false religion. Yes. And so it's, and that's why they often have a very scolding tone because they're right. yeah. rebuking yeah, people. For, yeah. Yeah. And then making fun of people and, 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 and you know, Harris, especially and Dawkins at times, you know, they, they seem to think that religion is, it's not just false, but it's very dangerous. And it's, it's yeah, an yeah. existential threat to humankind. Right. And so that's the motivation. But yeah, it's a big part of it. Um, but I think that the deep, one of the deepest motivations is just, and this is good. Like you have, you know, you should believe the truth. Um, you shouldn't yeah. believe things just because they make you feel good. Yeah. I think they just have some, some of these folks haven't dug deeply enough to see, well, if the naturalist um, metaphysic is correct, that I think I accept, then really there, there isn't any such thing as That's good true. and bad. There's no such or, thing as responsibility or yeah, you're right. I mean, fundamentally or even truth um, because, you know, truth requires, you know, there being a teleology, I guess. Because, yeah. What? Well, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a weird thing. Like um, there has to be something to be true. Like it could be a, a, a claim in your mind or, um, you know, they would have to say, well, what are the things that are true and how can we tell? There are a few, I don't think there are any new atheists who are open about this because they would lose their whole motivation for being a new atheist, but there are plenty, there are naturalists who recognize this. Um, you know, uh, Alex Rosenberg is probably the best example um, who wrote the book, uh, The Atheist Guide to Reality or An Atheist Guide to Reality. Yeah, yeah, he is, yeah. he's taken naturalism and he's, he's just followed it all the way down to, to in the end. He says, you know, there's no rationality. Um, it could, you know, how could there, there, you know, there can't be intentionality. Like thoughts couldn't be about something because how yeah, can you build yeah. aboutness out of physical parts? And if there's no aboutness, then there can't be th the thought. And if there can't be thought, there can't be rationality. And if there's not rash, you know, no rationality, then there's no truth that anybody could know about. Um, but the new atheists are very superficial in terms of the actual philosophy, their philosophical understanding. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot, even though I'm not uh, all that well-versed. It seems to me to be the case that it's it's, it's very superficial and the, the arguments are, uh, at least for the most part, very superficial. It it, it tugs at you at, at the first level, it seems, yeah. And then when you think a bit more about it, they haven't gone deep enough. It's it's still at the basic level, but it, I guess it, it gets a lot of use. Uh, it, I mean, uh, because even here, a lot of people love these books and read these books, and so yeah, they. Well, you know, and something you said this may have been before, right before we actually started the the interview, but you know, you mentioned that the growing secularism in 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 Kerala where you live. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, the, the context you described is one where people are coming more and more to the city. 
they're getting involved yeah. um, with, uh, you, you didn't say this, but I assume like there are jobs that involve, you know, using the internet, you're working yeah, in the office. Yeah, the IT park. We've got the techno park and that's where a lot of people are. That's the urban community. That's the young millennial community. Okay. And, and yeah. yeah that's and that's, a, you know, this is something that I didn't, I was just coming to see when, when James and I were writing the book. And now I, I, I realized how monumental of an issue it is. I mean, I think for many people who are secular today, I think the biggest driving force isn't anything that they, I mean, they have views that reflect their view of the world, but I don't think it was arguments that persuaded them. I think it was a, the, their experience of the world and their experience of the world is one where they live in a city. So they're mostly cut off from nature. Um, the city is also a, a place where people come to the city and when they come to the city, they have to cut ties with their family, with their, their traditional religion, with the traditions of their, their ancestors. And so people come from many different traditions and many different uh, families and they come to the city. And so it's like, it's like everybody starts over again and there's no longer any tie or culture that gives meaning to their life or explains the world to them. And their motivation in the city is to get a good job and to make money, which is fine. You know, that, that's, that's understandable why people want those things. And so they accidentally wind up embracing a new value system that's based around, you know, climbing a ladder of success and, and appearing as having higher status to your, to your peers and your colleagues and, and getting more, acquiring more material wealth. And, and what, so what basically seems like it inevitably happens when people come to a city is they, it's almost impossible to avoid taking on a secular view or, or experiencing like a secularization of the view that you had. It's very hard to hold on to a traditional yeah, yeah, belief system. Yeah. And to me, that is like when you are thinking about secularism and, or, you're or you're talking with people and you're trying to persuade them, it's such a difficult task because your real opponent is not an argument. Your real opponent is an economic system. The culture way of, of life. life. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, I, yeah. and that is... Oh, that what what can you or I do? I'm not this saying so these are true. bad things. It's just that's there's a logic that seems to be built into the physical space and the economy that um, is the real. I think the primary driver of secularism. Um, yeah, it's I don't no, know. This is it's so discouraging true. And, to think about. Yeah, this is this is because uh, we've had people who live in in close tight knit communities, and and that used to be the way. But um, uh, India became uh, more and more uh, wealthy as as the economic drive opened up, as 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 our economy opened up in the 1990s, and um, and people started to move towards cities and urban areas, and with that also came the rise of secularism, not overtly, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. uh, a a very um, a, a sort of undercurrent of secularism, if you will, and um, towards the 2010 and now even in 2020 or 2020 we we now have people who are effectively atheistic now they they might hold to uh, an idea of the religion that they had because it's still their root but that's just right. there it's it has no practical uh, it, there's no practical use of the religion that's just there it's, that's in their name but apart from that it's effectively atheistic and um the culture well it's almost uh, a mirror image of what goes on in the US what what goes on in the west so it's the same thing it's the same ideals that you imbibe and um 
and it's it's well well then you've got to read their books and i guess that's where documents and harris comes in but yeah that's the culture that's that that's where the culture is going to and um yeah so mass christians uh uh uh, we, we we dialogue with people and um, yeah, we increasingly come up with people who, like you mentioned, are not persuaded as much by arguments because because that's, that's not that's not the uh, that's not the foundation. That's not that's not what drives them in this culture. It's something else entirely. It's this it's this new way of life. It's this it's this economic utopia, if you will. It's 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 a new way of living that's opened up to them. That was really not the case uh, uh, 10, 20 years ago. Interesting. Um yeah, you know, it, it seems that you're interested in apologetics, and I, I think that um, this dynamic requires a change in 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 how people go about thinking of and, and practicing apologetics. I mean, I, how do you, how do you reach someone who is a part of the secular, you know, urban sphere? Um, and just as, as a side note, I mean, I think the internet. I see it as it's it's sort of like it works sort of like a giant global city that anybody can join if they have internet access. I mean, the things yeah, that it, yeah. the way it changes people's um, life and habits it resembles, I think, in many ways, urbanization. Um, but now you, you know because now you can work from online and you can interact with people more and more online instead of wherever you happen to actually physically be. And so it's the internet is sort of like a global city that anyone can be a part of now. But how do you? So how do how do you? reach people. I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer. The only thing that I think works um, doesn't work very well on a mass scale. And that I think is you try to model a different way of life where um, you put friendship and, and love and hospitality above status and career um, and image. And, you know, the, the secular urban way of life is is actually it's very inhospitable. It's it's a hard life. It's yeah. a it's a shallow life. Pursuing money and doing whatever it takes to climb a ladder to attain a higher status, it's not fulfilling, and it 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 it's causes people to feel depressed and and anxious. And so I think the best tactic for Christians is to become friends with people. Um, and not everyone will be open to that because friendship is from a certain perspective, a huge waste of time. Why would you spend so much time with this one person if it's not advancing your career? You know, it's yeah. just, it's <laughs> when a I can climb and, the social, When I can climb the corporate ladder, why on earth should I? That's right. I invest time, yeah, yeah. But people become, but people need friendship. They need, they need companions. And they're, they, they're, I think probably people are in general more lonely now than they've ever been in the history of the world. It's a hilarious yeah. thing to think about. Especially in the and, West, I guess, because I guess it seems to me that, that they're, they're, they're way more isolation, isolated than, and those of us here, although I guess we're moving in that direction, but it's it's coming for you, Kieran. <laughs> yeah, like, I I don't live in a city. I live on the, in the suburbs of a small town. But even where I live, and this is the urban sort of urbanizing effects of the internet. You know, on yeah. the the small street where I live, um, half the people I never see because they work from home and or they go to school and then they spend all their time on online and and I don't think playing playing you know Fortnite or games you know on their on their on their um, gaming system, I don't think that's re real companionship, and so I see loneliness around me too. Um, anyways, all that to say, it's we we live in a different landscape than like I'd say yeah. thirty or forty years ago, and I think I think apologists are recognizing this, but I right, yeah. something I've been thinking about recently because because my father used to tell me about the time he spent with his family, which is 
a very uh, close-knit, a huge family. Y- you know these uh, families that are traditional. And um, we came from that kind of family, but now we are a nuclear set. But before that, uh, we, he used to live with all of his, his aunts and his great-uncles and all of that. And this was this huge commune. And that's how life was in Kerala until very recently. But um, with this generation, with, with my own, the millennial generation, it stopped. Cause, yeah. Yeah, because my dad, he lived in a, a rural area, uh, which is an awesome area, but it's kind of far removed from the city where I am in right now. And he came in with his mom to this, this town where we are now because, uh, because of economic opportunities and all of that. Now we're here. But it's it's not the same. It's 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 entirely different. And he tells us the story of how it was back in the day, when mm-hmm. um, when the, it was his commune, and and all of these people would gather together, and and there was this shared sense of uh, moral duty and responsibility. Not that he would use those terms, but um, but uh, yeah, you know what I mean. So so that's how our society has changed uh, very recently. But yeah, that's how it's changed, and it and and it keeps on changing as people move from uh, my own city to the west, because India has a lot of migration, especially mm-hmm. Kerala. The people from my state would go to the UK, the US, and um, they become even more isolated with just uh, them, yeah. or maybe their own yeah, partner, and um, and it keeps getting, yeah, that's 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 the uh, move, and um, it's it's all uh, very similar, I guess, to how the the West would see the West is right now. That's the way in which we are moving uh, the urban millennial population. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, it's strange how these things happen. They they. They seem to get their own sort of momentum and it's hard for anyone to opt out. I mean, at this point, if you want your nation to be a part of the global economy, you know, it seems like you have to, people have to be online. They have to be willing to come to cities, um, you know, or the, the great city of the internet um, to, right. you know, to work. And so many of or these maybe dynamics. Maybe even the metaverse, I guess. <laughs> yes. No, exactly. That's a great, I think that's the next step. I mean, I, I hope it fails. <laughs> I hope the project fails terribly, <laughs> but I, I, I'm not sure that it will. I mean, so many, when I see how willing um, people are to spend, you know, 16 hours a day online, um, and I, when I see the interest people have in, you know, I don't know if, if you're experiencing this in, in Kerala, but in the U.S., especially in the cities, people wish they had absolute control over their bodies and every aspect of their identity. You know, they wish they could oh, yeah. change their gender the a little, yeah, their physical yeah. appearance. And the metaverse will let them do that. And so I think the appeal is going to be strong for many people. So, yeah, I mean, the, co- the consequences of something like the metaverse becoming widespread are beyond reckoning, but I'm sure it won't be good. Yeah, yeah. I've, I have heard a lot of arguments about that. And I've, I've tried to understand what, what it would mean, what the consequences of this of this idea of, of, of the metaverse would be. And it's, it is mind-boggling. And I guess, yeah, it, it would certainly would have uh, ill effects on society so yeah that's that's one part to think of but um here's the other aspect of all of this and um we talked about preferences and that's how we ended up to here uh, oh sorry but, yeah i got terribly no, yeah. sidetracked <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's fun because yeah I, I love the interaction about this but here's the thing uh emotivism is something that i uh thought would ask i'll ask you about because if 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 it is indeed the case that preferences are the are the driving force of moral decisions and behaviors, uh, emotivism might be uh, the um, root word. Alice Alice McIntyre, I guess, used that term uh, to 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 talk about culture uh, mm-hmm. that and, and the moral uh, desires of the culture, which is basically emotivism. And um, is that what we see right now? Is is it emotivism that's that's the driving force of of moral behavior today? Is it is it what your emotional preferences is? Because it seems to me the case, at least on some level. 
It's a great question. I mean, I think um, a good project for anyone, and I'm sure people are doing this, I just haven't seen it, is a really detailed analysis at trying to, or, or, or attempt at describing um, the current ethical system in place, or there's probably more than one, but um, you know, what is the current ethical perspective for say people who live in urban areas or people who live in rural areas, um, you know, it's gonna vary by geographic location and, and tradition and so forth. But in the popular discourse, in the public eye coming from the academy and from big cities, I'm not sure that it is a motivism. I mean, here's what, this is something I've been thinking not as diligently as I should have, but I have been thinking about it a little bit. People will say, um, oh, I feel like this, or I feel like that. They'll use the language of emotion. But if they were, if, if people, if regular people really were emotivists, then they would have to recognize, well, what I think is good, what I think is bad, what I think I ought to do. These are just my subjective feelings. And as such, they have no claim on anyone else. But that's not how people talk, it seems to me. You know, I think what, what seems closer to how people act is they think their feelings have very, very strong objective reality and yeah. objective validity. You know, how, again, this is kind of a, uh, an extreme example, but it's, you know, t very central to the public discussion where I live now, you know, how dare you tell me that I am a man because I feel like I'm a woman, a woman and that trumps, you know, the biology that I was born with or the opinions of, of my society. Um, and you know, it's not just, well, I feel differently. And so I'm going to live differently. It's, it's no, it's, it's a demand that seems to, like it's coming from a sense of an objective reality. Like, yeah. no, I, I am a woman and you have to refer to me as a woman um, and treat me like a woman because I feel like one. And so I, I don't, it's hard for me to see that in actual ethical practice today um, at, the, at, at, at elite levels, that emotivism is what's happening. I don't think that's it. I, I think that the view is, I'm not sure the view that's out there is coherent, but it, it puts a very, I think a high objective um, validity on, on these certain kinds of feelings as like pathways to, to reality. You know, I, it's like you, oh, you as oh, the individual yeah. have privileged access to who you are and everyone else has a responsibility to respect your feelings about that. That's my impression. This is so intriguing because because uh, I heard an uh, I read an argument about this because when people say that the um, transgender movement um, in, in the movement it's it's all subjective. There's this argument that no, there is a metaphysic attached to it because you can't. Uh, it seems, in fact, there is an even larger metaphysic because. Uh, you're saying that your bodily, your biology is, is not as important as this, as this metaphysic, as this way in which you feel. So, so it's, it's transcendent, all right. It's, it's in some cases spiritual, I guess. So, it certainly has this metaphysical aspect. It just, it just, yeah. uh, um, there's no clue as to what it is. But yeah, and I, and I see that. And um, I, I forget who made the case. Was it Ryan Anderson? But anyway, yeah, I see, I see the point. And um, it seems to me that it's it's the connection between identity and 
and the, 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 the feeling that you have because it's not just that you have this preference, it's that it's, it's so connected to who you are as a person mm -hmm. that any objection to it is an, is, is an accusation not just towards that preference but towards you as a person, to you as an individual. And that is, that is, so, that is so visceral, that, 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 that evokes such a visceral emotion from you that, that you cannot just stay there, you have to respond because you're not just attacking my preference, you're attacking me as a person. There is this mix of identity with the preference that, that I guess makes things a whole lot difficult. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, I mean, yeah, I feel I have less to say here. It's, it's such an important issue, but I haven't thought as much about it or read as much about it. I, I mean, I do observe that connection between, um, you know, something that you place a great deal of value in and your identity, I guess that's always there. But I, I, but maybe, maybe the way in which the identity is understood has shifted a little bit. I mean, I, I'm a man, and I, if someone said that I was a woman, I would disagree with them. I don't know how angry I would become. Um, maybe I would have to experience it to find out. I guess I, I, I see my identity in, in other terms. Uh, I'm just thinking out loud. But no, I think that that connection between identity and or, or sense of self-identity and deep-seated value is strong. Um, and it is a driver for, maybe for everyone, it just, maybe just the aspect under which you understand your identity varies for different people. I'm not sure it's, yeah, I yeah, have but, a lot of helpfulness. But, but denial of biological reality does seem to be a huge issue. And and of course, uh, theological reality as a whole, because uh, it it is it is the case that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, and and to claim otherwise seems to me to be well wrong, but I guess wrong is a term that's uh, that's not really helpful when when you are in a culture that has no objective grounds for morality. But yeah, and, you know, um, there's there. Oh, I'm sorry, you go ahead. Oh, uh, the only reason I said and. Was because there's this connection I want to draw with between preferences and something that Carl Truman mentioned in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, in which he drew our attention to this particular, and I loved it. It was it was this article by Thomas De Quincey, on on the aesthetic value of murder, on the aesthetics of murder, because uh, because even in Macbeth, and he mentions Macbeth uh, uh, another place in which you you find sympathy for the perpetrator as well as for the victim. And to evoke sympathy for the perpetrator, to evoke sympathy for someone who's just committed a murder, is not an easy task. And yet, uh, authors seem to be able to do it. And your ability to have sympathy for this murderer, who is in fact objectively a murderer, uh, and makes makes a strong case for for the aesthetic value of morality, because if a, if a culture is is purely motivistic, then it can lead to uh, morality being uh, an aesthetic exercise uh, more than anything else. That was the connection, and I and I and I, I guess that really fascinated me because that made me think. Well, wow, uh, think about a culture that has its basis on preferences. But you mentioned that that's not just the case. But even so, assuming that there is some connection between morality and preferences, and the idea of preferences being so attuned to our tastes. Uh, where would that lead a person? Because, uh, like yeah. Dickens mentioned. No, I mean, I think um, <clears throat> the connection between aesthetics and, and ethics 
I mean, there's a strong one. And I, I, I don't think I have much that's helpful to say here, but, you know, it, it's clear to me that beauty is a component of ethics. Um, maybe for just about everyone. I, at least I think we, we recognize beauty as good and good is, is in the realm of ethics. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you know, it's not, it's beauty is physical beauty, at least, is, you know, it's not the highest good, but plenty of people in all kinds of cultures will elevate certain kinds of aesthetic beauty above, you know, much else. Yeah, um, yeah, true. And so, you know, the, the, yeah, I, I feel like I don't, I don't have a lot of great thoughts here, but I think there is a connection in terms of what, a specific connection to emotivism. I think it would make it easier to have an, a sort of an aesthetic-based ethics because if you're an emotivist, there are no there are no prescriptions for for what your your ethical view should be. You know, it's a emotivism is just an analysis of what is happening when we seem to be making moral judgments. Yeah. Because they, you know, it's like, well, I'm a naturalist, and there couldn't be any such thing as goodness or value or duty. So what's going on when we say that's good or that's bad? Oh, we must just be expressing a preference or making a statement like, you know, yay for beauty or yay for, or, you know, yay for this person, um, boo on this person, you know? So it doesn't tell you what, what you should have good feelings and bad feelings about. It just tells you what's happening when you have those feelings yeah, or when you yeah, try to say things yeah. are good or bad. So I, to me, emotivism feels like a, kind of an empty vessel that anything can be put into. Um, you can like anything and then, and then, you know, build an emotivist ethics off of it. And, and that's because is there any prescription? Does anyone follow a prescription? Because at least on a superficial level, no one seems to have a prescription for what one ought to do. It, it's just, it's just. On emotivism? One, yeah. On emotivism. It's just how one feels, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I that, that's an interesting question. I haven't read enough of their theory to know what they would say. I, Right. They might say things like, um, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to see how it would sort of inevitably collapse into kind of um, dynamics of power. You know, we, we can yeah. all say, I, I like this, I don't like this. So who gets their way? And, you know, the person who has the, the might to make it so or the person with enough prestige that everyone else will agree with, agree with him. Um, but yeah, the, this is, the, you're just hearing like my off the cuff thoughts. I have not, not read or thought deeply about this. Yeah. This may yeah. Be, no, maybe garbage. Because, <laughs> no, because that seems to me that that's exactly how the West goes because there really isn't much of transcendent authority in uh, modern popular West is there. I mean, it seems that almost uh, all authority is abandoned and it's, it's just, well, uh, <laughs> there is a magisterium. It's just that it's the scientists who are the, um, the arbiters of truth, I guess. Uh, would that be right? And um, if that yeah, no, that's a case? great question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, this is real controversial territory here, but my, yeah, uh, and this is far outside my area of expertise, but my, my impression is they're sort of different... Uh, different kingdoms, if you will. Um, there, there's the kingdom of what you might call the ruling elites in, in the U.S. And it's people who have who work in the academy, in the, in, in the government, um, who have high-paying jobs in urban areas. And 
this is, isn't true for all of them, but there's sort of a prevailing ethical outlook there. And it's what you might call the meritocracy. It's, it's very secular, as you and I have been talking about. It's oriented around um, high, high um, faith in science. It's, to these people, it's very important to have status and power. Uh, and they're less interested in, in many of the traditional values. And just because they've chosen a path that, that can move them around the world very easily between urban centers uh, in pursuit of the things they think are valuable, powerful positions and money. Um, and, and so uh, that's sort of one, you might call it a moral order. And then people who live outside of these areas who, who work, you know, more ordinary labor type jobs, you know, you're, you build houses, you're a plumber, um, you sell things at, at the mall or at a store, um, you live in a smaller town or in a rural area, uh, it's much more, I think, variable to what the local culture is like. I mean, I'm sorry, I lost the train of thought. What was the, what was the issue we were talking about? I distracted myself, sorry. Oh, no. I, I was just asking you about um, the uh, scientists being the arbiter of truth in, in Oh, the right. West. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, this, and so what, what, what I, one kind of lens through which to see this in, in, in my country is with COVID-19, a lot of these fault yeah. lines have appeared. And so um, the kind of urban elites, they, you know, they, they, they claim to have a very high view of science uh, and people who live in more outside of the urban areas, the suburbanites, the rural, rural folks, they're, they're seen as having a low view of science. And this shows up as in terms of how people react to uh, public health mandates regarding COVID. Uh, coronavirus, and it's true that the the or the urban elites say that they are all about following science. I, I think if you look at it closely, it's not clear that's the case. When I mean, they do, many of them are scientists, but um, at least as important to them is maintaining political power. Yeah. And science is a fantastic tool for them to do that. Um, I think it matters in many cases less what science is saying and more that everyone else is is following whatever the scientists say. Uh, because that's a means for, well, in sociology, you would call it social control. And right, when people, right. when people disagree with what science seems to be saying, it makes the ruling elites, you know, furious because they're losing sort of a, a powerful tool. Um, I'm not trying to say that the people who disagree with this, the public health science are right. I just, I'm no, saying yeah. this, is, this seems to the be point. the social yeah. dynamic. The, uh, yeah. the cultural tensions, I see that. And, um, I guess it's it's conservative and uh, liberal and 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 the um the tensions Very often. that are yeah, yeah driven there, and um. Uh, here's a question. Uh, I read somewhere that the American Psychological Association, the, uh, has put out that uh, gender, gender is not just binary, but that it's it's actually a spectrum. Now I've seen many people make that argument. Many politicians in America make that argument. Uh, not just in America, but outside of America, but. If the American Psychological Association would put something out like that, and I don't know if that's the case, but if that is true, um, how does that? Because that seems to me one a point in which uh, power is involved. Because it seems very hard to me to understand uh, how you can go from biological reality uh, uh, of of binary uh, sexes to to what is seemingly a multiplicity of of of, of, of genders and all of that. Uh, to... Yeah, I mean, this is, um, 
and I'm, I'm way outside of my area of knowledge here, but I, oh, I, yeah, I do have but, thoughts. So, you know, we're yeah. just talking. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, two, two, there are two, at least two issues here. One is the American Psychological Association, um, <laughs> they're, they're not only interested in saying what the sober scientific truth is. I mean, it's, it's a huge collection of academics. Academics are, are, almost monolithically on one end of the political spectrum there, you know, this, this institution and almost all the people who yeah. are part of it are progressives. That in itself is, is quite a question. Why is it that almost all of them are end up on one end of the political spectrum? Yeah, okay. that's a, and that's a very deep question that I, I don't have good answers to. Um, I mean, some of it, some of it is kind of a snowball effect. Like the Academy somehow became more liberal and then progressive. And yeah. so that makes it more likely that you'll become one if you Peer join pressure that as well, joining guild. In, in but how did it become so originally? I, I don't have good thoughts there. I right. don't know. I mean, yeah. yeah. but but going back to the, the APA, I mean, so this is a huge group of professional progressive people. So um, they move along with what the progressive mores and, and norms are. And so the driver here for them is not just science. Science plays a role, but it's such a huge sort of value center for the far left progressive perspective that it's not surprising to me that they would say that. However, and I think you were hinting at this in what you were just saying. I mean, I, it's not clear to me that gender is a scientific issue. Um, sex is, biological sex is, but biological sex, uh, it's a, I'm not, I'm not a scientist here. I'm not a biologist, but from reading on Wikipedia, you know, it, there there are gray areas. Um, th there are different different factors that go into assessing whether someone is male or female, and those factors can can occur or not occur to in various degrees. And so, um, I'm I'm not convinced that science can tell us can sort of settle the gender question. I think it's fundamentally a metaphysical issue. Um, now. I'm not trying to defend the APA because that was not their motivation. They're not, they're not good philosophers. They're not saying this is outside of our, our realm to adjudicate. They're not saying that their motivations are totally ideological. Right. right. Um, but I think, and probably there are people doing good work in gender. I just haven't read it. I, I just think, you know, if you are, if you are kind of a traditional Christian, then I think the approach should be something like in the beginning, God made them male and female but I think there is a gender component to that there, that's tied into the teleology. Yeah. Uh, this is why I think Aristotle is such a genius. I think he, he was able to discern the, the reality of a teleological order in nature. And I think that ties in very nicely with a classic Christian perspective. And so right. I think Christians should say, well, gender, gender was something that God teleologically oriented the sexes toward. Um, and thinking about it in that framework, I think could be helpful. Um, yeah. But I don't know if that's, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. The, 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 the thing I am, I think about is, is the fact that, um, while it certainly is the case that, uh, there are masculine, uh, that there, there is the masculinity and femininity. Uh, how does that change biological reality? That's the only thing that I'm concerned about because it certainly is the case that there would be effeminate men, and um, there would be more masculine females, but they're right. still females and the other are still men. And when you shift the category and make 
effeminate men female that's where i guess the question comes to ontology and now it's not just about your your preference or, or the way in which you react or in which how you how the society around you has has, has shifted you it's not the case we we certainly agree that, that there certainly are uh, people who who might be who might uh, exhibit a more feminine side while being male or may exhibit a more masculine side while being female but right. we still mention biological reality the uh, dualistic nature of it the binary nature of it and um when you change that that seems to me to be problematic so i guess um and i guess when when huge associations and uh, scientists and people uh, seem to vouch for this 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 view of, of of reality being so confusing then i guess there is a problem so and um i i wonder if the underlying as motivation for all of this or, or the underlying reason for all of this is this lack of any transcendent view of morality when all of this is just subjective and and uh, and subject to preferences is that why all of this is happening in the first place hmm. yeah that's a great question i mean um the conditions you're describing seem crucial what i think about though is um they don't seem sufficient to explain this this particular phenomenon like uh, elevating the role of human preference in in finding a way of life, um, you know, believing that we have so much control over choosing our identity. That's one issue, but why would it settle on gender factors? I don't know. I don't know the answer there. You see what I'm saying? Like it's sort of like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These conditions about the role of preferences in the in the in the evacuation of the transcendent. This is sort of like an aquarium, but what goes in the aquarium? What kind of fish? I don't know. Yeah. For some reason, the yeah. fish we wound up with is uh, gender, gender fluidity or, or, you know, um, voluntaristic, you know, gender, like I can choose what gender I am. That, that's a bit, that would be a, I've not read anything about that. Maybe you have like, why has this emerged as one of, if not the hot button issue yeah, where it's, it's, the interest is occurring? I don't know. I don't have a theory there or a story. Yeah, I think Al Truman addresses some of that in his book. But yeah, it's something that oh. that really fascinates me. And and yeah, that's why. And I wondered if 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 the grounds for all of this is this lack of of any transcendent source of morality. And um, I guess it's part of it. But yeah, you're right. It 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 is it is confusing as to why this is the expression of 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 this uh, lack of transcendence. Why this particular Mm, uh, revolution to call it that i don't know if if, if you ought to sure. call it a revolution mm. but i guess it, it, why that is the primary uh exhibition uh of, of a lack of transcendence of this of this modern age in which we live so but, you're saying truman truman talks a little bit about why why gender in particular i need to yeah read this yeah book. i've been hearing yeah it's a, it's a great book i i love the book he mentions he starts off with i'm a man trapped in a woman's body how does that make sense in today's world how's that how on earth does that sentence make sense? Because obviously, if you lived in the 80s, it's not going to make sense, at least right. no one here. And I don't think many people in the West would have, maybe, I don't think a lot of people would have understood what the statement even meant. I'm a, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. But Well, even worse, just briefly, um, when you used to encounter that phenomenon, it was in the context of like movies about weird serial killers. Like, I don't know if oh. you ever saw Silence of the Lambs. You know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. The yeah. serial killer that movie is trying to become a woman. I don't think they would make a movie like that today. But so that's for a little context of how that 
I'm a woman trapped in a man's body would have been seen 30 years ago. Yeah, That's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in this society, in this culture where morality is so, de where it's so devoid of morality, we go on to artificial intelligence and ethics. So if you, if you, if you are such a lack, if, if there is no basis for you to judge anything, and it's all based on, uh, well, if not just preferences, on, on a whole lot of factors that, that are really placed in some kind of vacuum and you have no idea where you're going, how is it that you're going to be able to create artificial intelligence with ethical values? Because that certainly is the mm. case, uh, and uh, that would be the case with self-driving cars, that would be the case with a whole lot of things that we're going to deal with, especially in the future. And even, even, even now, when we've got algorithms galore, that will take you to this and that based on certain ethical principles that the AI has, well, has understood, has, has been programmed to learn. Mm. So, how, how is it? How is it possible? How, how, how can you arrive at ethics for AI in this culture? And, and that's the question that, that, that I guess is... <laughs> no, that's a great... That's a great I've, not, I've not thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I guess you, um, there's so many levels here. It's, it's, a, it's gonna be a conundrum. Um, you know, the, the, one of the problems with ethics in our culture is we live in a, or at least I, where you live too, there's to some degree it's pluralist, there, there's disagreement. Yeah, so yeah. How so how can AI, ethical AI, handle the problem of pluralism? It's unclear. Um, you know, we, Ordinary, real humans don't seem to handle it very well. Um, I mean, it's good that we have freedom to some, you know, some degree of freedom in, in what we believe and the value systems that we, we adhere to, but how does that inter intersect with AI? It's a great question, Kieran. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, th there are these articles in Medium uh, when you, I guess, you, you, you use supervised learning for AI. And um, when you do, when you use supervised learning for it, uh, you you would certainly have to have this this, this sample, and um, this this control group. And um, when you have that, that's that's the area of that that's the problem because uh, unless you have this this specific group of Harvard educated uh, <laughs> U.S. guys, that's that's a very small uh, subset, and um, they probably would have uh, a, a uniform uh, model code. But that's not going to help you when you move out. So, yeah. <laughs> what are have you, you going to face? This, have you seen this website? I think it's called Delphi. Um, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, because basing it on the Delphic Oracle. So, well, you uh, know, it just it's it's an AI, early AI or it's an AI program that basically crawls the web or portions of the web to see what people say is good and bad. It's, you can ask yeah. it a question like, is and it, it wrong? Say it is to, wrong. It is right. Yeah, the murder is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it doesn't. But it, it's, it gets the it gets the answer wrong so many times. It's kind of funny, you know. It's if you say like, um, I can't remember that I I was playing with it with with some of my colleagues. But it's, if you say like, uh, is it is it wrong? Um, I can't remember. It's like, is it wrong to kill a Republican? And we'll say yes. It's like, <laughs> but if you say like, you're like, is it is it wrong to um. I can't remember. It's very easy to trick. And, yeah, and so yeah, it's, yeah. you know, again, you know, people will say, well, it's the early days, you know, we haven't got the bugs out yet, but the principle is what you're describing. Like, it's just, it's sort of emergent or 
it's surfing on what other people are saying. And so it's only going to, if that's the mechanism by which it arrives at moral statements, it's, it's just going to be as good or bad as we are. They, they would have to level up to something. I mean, they would and, have, they would have to reduplicate the human moral sense. And then. Yeah, and on what basis, I guess, would one ask, because what is the human moral empirical. sense apart from, <laughs> yeah, it's not empirical. So what is How it apart from it? any, any revelational yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I'm amazed at how people seem to want to carry this forward, and yet, uh, uh, yet this is such a dangerous idea because if you, if you have no conception of right and wrong and you're using uh, appeal to majority, but even that is mm -hmm. not the case because you're, you're not even appealing to majority, you're appealing to a particular control group, and um, their own moral values might not even be in sync. So it is, it, it is, it is a mind-boggling question. But I, I guess it is, it, 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 it's. It's one of the modern facets of society in which we live. But, yeah. So, here's, uh, here's one more thing that I wanted to ask you. Uh, you and um, uh, Dr. James Davison Hunter were with the discussion, a discussion with um, Dr. Michael Shermer. Right, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and he, was, he, he mentioned something, and that got me thinking. So, here's the thing that he mentioned. He was talking about um, d divine command theory, and he said... Well, all right. Uh, so it's not obvious that science can help us help us in morality, but certainly theistic conceptions cannot help us either because divine command theory is obviously other other table. So yeah, um, and um, a friend of mine, uh, he 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 made this argument. Uh, it was not in relation to this, but he said about he talked about divine moral um, realism. Uh, or in some sense, in which he, he said, no, that's not, that's not the case. We are covenantly bound to our creator. And and so our psychology has has a function, has a telos. And um, and that's that's where the art comes from. So it's not divine command theory. It's, it's more like um, we have a covenant relationship with the creator and um, we are, uh, there is this, we, we, uh, our function or rather, the the normativity is part of the function, the function theory of normativity. I think that's what that's what people call it. Oh. So, so if you've got a knife, if you've got a knife, and um, its function is to cut stuff. Yeah. So yeah, when it when it does it, when it does the thing that's supposed to do, yeah, that's that's great. And and um, uh, I guess in that sense, you've got men and women made in the image of God, and when you do things that you ought to do based on the character of God, yeah, that's. That's how you ought to be, and when you when you move away from that, you're now outside of, of, of the realm of what God wants you to be. So uh, instead of divine command theory, this is what he talked about in a, in, a, in a particular uh, Facebook post. He's a pretty smart guy. So I wanted to ask your thoughts about this because uh, about yeah about this. Yeah, I mean I think that's right. Um, you know, philosophically, divine command theory is the view that um, things are right or wrong or good or bad just because God says so. Yeah, and, yeah. And the, the big problem for philosophers is how could anybody just saying something is the case, make it true, it can't. Um, and so that's the point where I would agree with Shermer, the divine command theory can't be the right answer. I mean, the view yeah. your friend describes, I, th I think that's the true view. I would just say, you know, that's basically Aristotle's view. The difference is that I think you, you can take Aristotle and um, you need to Christianize him um, which I guess Aquinas and plenty of others have done, but yeah, you know, you, yeah. you connect 
the 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 tele like the the objectives the purposes for which living organisms were made to the creative intentions and design of a good creator of god right and, and right. that's the, that's where the function comes from yeah um, yeah and so that is you know on the, the view that i think is correct ethics does come from god because god created this order yeah uh, where things are you know things have certain things have value and certain organisms are related to other valuable things uh, in their very essence. And that generates an obligation, um, different kinds of obligation. And then a part of that is the strange entity of, of human beings who, like other organisms, have, have, have a, a purpose built into us. But ours is so vast. You know, it involves at least the whole earth and maybe the cosmos and it involves the, our creator himself yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. each other. You know, we're made to be stewards of creation and to love each other um, and to, to love and, and obey God as our king. So, you know, it's, but I think that is the, so I think Shermer's right. The divine command theory is is wrong, but he, yeah. he, when he says that, I think what he usually means is morality has to be totally disconnected from God. And that, yeah, that's that not makes true. Sense couldn't me. couldn't be yeah. more further from the truth. He calls it magic when you put God, I mean, he's he's an intelligent guy, but when he says it's magic when you use um, uh, God as foundation similarly, I I kind of lose the plot because I don't see why he has to use the term because uh, God seems to me the best answer for why human beings are moral and why we ought to be moral. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, I don't like um, recommending my own work, but there there's a paper that I wrote a couple of years ago called Reality, A Shopper's Guide. And the last two thirds of that paper, I make the argument you were just making. Um, and I, I really like that argument. I, I, uh, it basically is it's an attempt to flesh out how God is the, the best explanation for not just morality, but so many of the distinctive characteristics of human beings that right. just cannot be yeah. accounted for yeah. on a naturalistic picture. On a naturalistic perspective. But yeah. on, a, on a theistic picture, I mean, even beyond Christianity, if you're, if you're a Muslim, if you're Jewish in a traditional sense, if you, um, or if you're a Christian, if you have one of the kind of big three monotheistic views where God is a good creator um, and creates human beings like roughly in his image. It just, it's a great explanation actually right. far better yeah. than the naturalistic explanation yeah. for human beings. And um, he called it divine moral rationalism. I, I butchered the term, but he called it divine moral rationalism. My friend, when he, yeah, when he talked about this, that God is a moral archetype and um, his essential nature defines morality. So yeah. And yeah, that seems to me uh, a better answer than divine command theory. And yeah, uh, uh, I, I guess it is. It it, it 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 defines why why it is that we we are moral and why it is that we ought to live this way. But here's here's one more thing: uh, the Euthyphro dilemma, which people throw at it when we talk about um, God being the source of morals. It's the Euthyphro dilemma that almost everyone would uh, would throw at Christians. Yeah. And the, the obvious answer would be no. We're not talking about that. God's God's own nature is 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 the grounds for for his morality. So in essence, it's a grounds of morality. We're not talking about good as being outside of him or that him right. saying something is good. Yeah, but uh, what about the Euthyphro dilemma uh, on the evolutionary ethicist? Because, because, <laughs> and I, and I, and I thought about that. Um, I, I wonder because why, why couldn't that be applied there as well? Uh, w what is good is, um, well, is what one uh, what evolved model senses think is good, or or is 
is good outside of one's evolved moral sense. And um, I wonder, can that be applied to the evolutionary ethicists? Hmm. Yeah, let me, let me think for a second. I mean, I, my, my sense is they... I think some people have tried to give the answer, our moral sense evolved to um, the way that it did because, because it needs to give us access to what is good. I don't know, I don't know what people have said about this. It's a good question. I mean, I think they could try to take either horn. They could say, they could try to tie knowledge of, of morality to some story on which that can give some adaptive advantage, which they right. can do because you can tell a story about how any feature confers an adaptive advantage. It's, it's I mean, the, the trouble with evolutionary um, psychology is, and these kinds of explanations is, it's so easy to tell a story where in that story, this or that characteristic confers a, a survival advantage. An advantage, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, what, what maybe the, yeah. I mean, what the yeah. field needs to do, I think, to if they are being intellectually honest to say, um, let's spend a few years trying to show what examples of things that cannot be given an adaptive you know, justification. I don't think they'll be able to find any. <laughs> and then I think they'll realize it's not a good way yeah. of proceeding. Um, yeah, yeah. Because you can just, I mean, I don't know, you know, oh, we, I mean, you've, you've seen these like human beings are social and, um, and the reason we're social is because that confers a survival advantage. Oh, human beings are very violent and they, and they dominate other humans. Oh, but that's yeah. because it confers survival advantage. I mean, any, anything yeah, can yeah. survive. Anything can confer a survival advantage. So yeah. At the end of um, the day, it's, yeah. Or at least it seems that way. That's, I think, a yeah. huge hurdle they would have to get over yeah. to, to be taken more seriously. But, um, Running this youth, this kind of euthyphro problem, I think you could do it, and it could be a way of sorting sorting um, evolutionary psychological accounts of morality into different kinds, like ones that say what we think of as good and bad, we think of as good and bad just because that's how our moral sense evolved, and I think that's what most people would say. Right. But then it's hard yeah. for them to to take it as objectively true, which yeah. they're consistent. They tend to say, you know, they tend to be these kinds of naturalistic moral nihilists. Yeah. Um, the harder one is to say it evolved to get things right. And this is what, this is the horn that Nagel pushes on in Mind and Cosmos because he, because Nagel was coming at it from the perspective that there really is objective morality. How could we have evolved to know about it? Um, with random mutation and natural selection, there's no, this mechanism does not seem capable. Yeah. So that's putting by, the good outside of the process. Right. right? So, it would yeah, be an yeah. unbelievable. It would be a miracle. If, yeah. if we could know what was right and wrong, yet we do. And so he takes that as an objection to um, naturalistic evolution. So, yeah, I, I think, I think you, there, there is, you could set up a version of the euthyphro dilemma for, for, you know, evolutionary moral psychology. Um, I think it's easier. Was it easier? No, I think it, it here's, here's the kind of the rhetorical problem, I guess. With theists, Theists, um, just as a contingent historical fact, are all, are usually objectivists about morality. Yeah. And so both horns of the dilemma work against the theist. But 
evolutionary moral psychologists aren't as committed to objective morality. So it's easier for them to take one of the two horns and just say, oh, we just think certain things are good and bad and right or wrong because of how we evolved. It's not really tracking anything that's independent of us. Um, right. They're more willing to embrace relativism or nihilism um, than, than most theists are. So you could use it, but but rhetorically, it's not as strong, I think, for that reason. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, ultimately, I don't see uh, any value in uh, evolutionary ideas, accounts of morality, but yeah. Yeah, um, the Euthyphro dilemma, yeah, applied there, does make sense. Can any kind of normativity work in naturalism? Because uh, like Planting um, has said, is, is it the Achilles heel of naturalism? Is any sort of normative? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think naturalism is all Achilles heels. It has so many, it's like a centipede and all the heels are injured. Uh, but rationality is, is one of them. I mean, I, is it, I don't recall this argument from Planiga, but... Um, There's a huge problem with how we could know about objective right and wrong or good and bad, but the first reaction that some naturalists will make is, well, there's something like normativity um, just in terms of rationality, right? Like I want to achieve this end. There are rational or irrational ways of going about that. You know, like if I want to come to, come to Kerala, uh, it makes sense to get on an airplane and it doesn't make sense to like pack my backpack and walk out my front door and start walking toward yeah. the beach. <laughs> um, and so there, there's a normativity built into rationality, but, but maybe as planning is saying, I don't recall, I mean, that, that's still naturalism can't explain that normativity any, any better than they can moral normativity. Um, and this is what, uh, some naturalists who are, I think are very honest, like, um, I mentioned him earlier, Alex Rosenberg have recognized like, right. There's still a normativity to rationality that still doesn't make sense on a naturalist picture. Um, it's, it fares no better than than moral or ethical normativity. Yeah, yeah. Like kind of instrumental rationality, that is. Right, right. Yeah, because, yeah, it it, it does seem, it seems uh, <laughs> kind of flotsam and jetsam all over there uh, with, with um, the atheistic views of, of, of all of these ideas of rationality, of, of logic. Um, Dr. James Anderson uh, writes this wonderful paper on the loss of logic and... Um, uh, and uh, divine thoughts, and then on to uh, a theistic conception. So, um, and all of these factors don't these transcendentals don't seem to have any sort of founding if you don't consider a theistic framework. I guess that would that would be the same for for um, the loss of mathematics, um, moral arguments. Obviously, all of these seem to me to be outside of the realm of uh, scientific explanations. And I guess you need you you need a a um, transcendent grounding for these to be there, for these to then to be able to use them in your scientific experimentation, not the other way around. At least it seems to me. Maybe so. I, 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 I'm not a hundred percent convinced of this. I, but I haven't thought about it a ton. I mean, I think the what a theistic view can offer here is there, um, the possibility of a certain kind of, kind of unified explanation. Um, I mean, ultimately, the theist has to say, well, so you're giving an explanation, you're saying, why is this the way it is? Well, this is the way it is because of this, like, explanatorily prior thing. Well, why is that the way it is? Well, that's because of this other explanatorily prior thing. And you want there to be an end. You know, you mm -hmm. don't want it just to keep going forever. Yeah, um, the regress going on. Yeah. 
And so theists say that the end of it is God. And um, so we're allowed to have a stopping place. So the atheists are allowed to have a stopping place too. So if the atheist says, why is the realm of mathematics objective in the way it is? It just is. They're allowed to say that. And that's, as far as I can tell, as good of an answer, a good of a stopping place. No, it's not bad just because it's a stopping place. The trouble I think is that stopping place won't work for everything. Like they can't ground morality in mathematics. They can't ground mind in mathematics. They can't ground materiality in mathematics. And so they're going to, the trouble is they're going to wind up all of these different foundational starting points. But the theist, I think, potentially can unify them all on this one, one single ground, God. It's just less clear to me how mathematics is a part of that, just because I haven't thought of it as much. I I think there are probably ways, but so much of what we explain about human beings very naturally comes back to God because God is a personal being. And so it just, it's very intuitive that many things about how we are would come from the being that made us to be like him. But I'm sorry, I keep cutting off. Oh no, it's just that, um, I guess, true propositions uh, you you cannot ground through any true proposition in a in a, in a naturalistic framework, can you? Mm, at least that's that's part of the argument. Because I mean, um, the hard well, yeah, maybe not because the the question would be what if you're a naturalist, what is a proposition? Um, you know, uh, interestingly, my my yeah yeah my advisor um, wrote a book about propositions and what they are. It's a, it's a it's a weird thing, but I think it's an interesting one. Um, you know, some people say, well, they're they're thoughts. And some people say, no, there are these abstract entities like properties or universals that just exist out there. And so the trouble is that neither of those work very well for the naturalist. They can't explain the intentional thought because that's too spooky. How do you explain that with naturalistic principles? Abstract, you know, transcendent universals or things like transcendent universals to be propositions that then yeah. like mirror reality, equally strange. Why I guess the, that's the um, distinction between divine conceptualism and Platonism. I think so, yeah. Or or even human conceptualism. They, any right. kind of conceptualism, naturalism, yeah, doesn't seem to be it, able to explain Yeah, it. Immateriality would be really hard to explain from an atheistic standpoint. It's So I guess any sort of these, all of these would be hard for them. Because ultimately when you, when you, I guess in a reductionistic perspective, you've got to reduce this down to material properties. And... Um, all of these kind of transcend that in some way. So, yes, I mean, um, maybe, maybe um, a kind of a so maybe oversimplified way of thinking about it is for there to be a true proposition, one thing has to be about another thing. You, you have to have this one thing that gets reality right or doesn't. And if it gets right. it right, it's true. Uh, but what is this getting right? It's, you know, what it, you, how, how can one thing be about or reflect or represent right, an, right. another thing? It doesn't seem like something you can explain in terms of any known material forces or natural processes. You, I mean, a move that naturalists will sometimes make is they try to start importing transcendent stuff into their view, like, well, it's all, um, you know, empirical processes and intentionality. You know, they start smuggling <laughs> things in because yeah, yeah, they have yeah. to. I mean, in a way, that's the fair move. Like you have to account yeah. for reality how it is. But then they have but once the do doors open to that. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? On what grounds do you bring in? Do you bring in intentionality? Well, it seems like it's really out in the world. Well, so does objective morality. I mean, 
so does uh, so does rationality. You know, so does you know. It's, now the the floodgates are open, and it's hard. Yeah. To, yeah. How are you still a naturalist? You're you're just <laughs> yeah. You're, edging, yeah. you're running down the slippery slope toward a true view of reality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you so you start off with the assumption of metaphysical naturalism, or uh, is that philosophical naturalism? Or I guess they're both the same. The same uh, thing. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to methodological naturalism. Oh yeah, you know, um, people make this distinction. I wanted to ask you about that because you mentioned philosophical naturalism in in in, in a conversation. Now I don't remember if it was the bioethics conversation or if it was with Shermer. I think it was in the um, bioethics thing uh, that you you and Dr. Davison Hunter when you talked with a um, Harvard uh, professor. You've really done your research, Karen. I think oh, you're yeah. the only, only person who's seen that that interview. I, I love the talk uh, because uh, you guys went into Kant and all of that, so I kept listening to it. And, um, and you mentioned philosophical naturalism, and I wanted to ask you about this as well. So I got the opportunity. So yeah, you know, I, it, is that distinction the, there? The philosophical or, or the metaphysical or what is? It? I guess the terminology is usually ontological naturalism, methodological naturalism. Yeah. I don't think about that distinction too much. And why is that? I guess, I guess I think. Um, why would you why would you follow methodological naturalism if you're not an ontological naturalist? I mean, sometimes this comes up in discussions about the proper method of science, right? Um, yeah. Some people yeah. will say, oh, I'm not an ontological naturalist, but I think science needs to remain methodologically naturalist. Yeah, I guess yeah, why I've heard I don't, that. I guess why I don't think about it too much is to me, um, science is definite, science means many things, but the interesting conception of science uh, for discussions like ours is one that I think is definitionally tied to empirical search. And right. so I think it is the, the science in this sense is method. I think this is right. I think it is methodologically naturalist. I would just say you to have an accurate view of, your, view of reality, you have to supplement this method with others that enable you to know about non-empirical right. things. Right. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, I don't care about whether science is is remaining like ruthlessly method uh, methodologically naturalist like um if someone said you know i'm pre i'm presupposing and then they presuppose some religious claim about the nature of the universe and they're trying to use empirical methods to play a role in this broader theory i'm fine with that um because ultimately i think you have to you have to have a view that that synthesizes all the aspects of reality. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. I guess I think so often in these conversations, what we mean by science is already defini definitionally tied to naturalist methods. Um, it just doesn't come up. And I'm, I'm willing to sort of grant for these the sake of these conversations, yeah, what I mean by science is naturalistic. And that's fine. You just have to supplement it with other other ways of knowing so that you don't wind up as an ontological naturalist because that's that would be a false view of, of the world. Right, yeah. I don't know if that's and, interesting, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And assuming ontological naturalism, uh, how would you do science? It, it's always fast, It's always intrigued me because you have to assume uniformity in nature in some sense, right, to, to do science. Uh, you're assuming that the laws stay relevant, that they say stay the same. And... Um, what are you basing that on if, you, if you're assuming metaphysical naturalism from the beginning or ontological naturalism? It's just the way it is. That's again, 
no, not an explanation. That's it's 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 Hume's conundrum, right? It's Hume's question as to the uniformity in nature. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, just thinking here for a second. It's a good question. Oh yeah. Right. Um, hmm. I, it seems, I mean, it's, it is a classic, it's a classic conundrum of how to justify the laws of nature empirically, as Hume pointed out. And it's not, I, I, I haven't, I'm not deeply well read in philosophy of science, but it's not clear to me that this problem has been solved. Right. Does that mean you have to stop being a naturalist? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Um, it's not clear to me that you do, but, but maybe a rigorous analysis of it would show that you, you, you wind up being forced to posit the existence of something that wouldn't be naturalistic. I, I just, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's an argument that a lot of, um, presuppositional apologists might make. And, um, hmm. uh, it's an argument that, um, I, I've seen in uh, uh, literature as well, and um, Dr. James Anderson in a, in, a, in a lecture on the laws of nature and nature's God made the argument, and um, it's it's something that's always uh, well, I like the argument, and I and I would keep on thinking about it, and um, yeah, uh, your book on science and morality and all of that, yeah, well, I thought I'd ask you about it too, because <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's 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 fun to think of, and, yeah, um, yeah, so, <laughs> so that's there are many that. questions, you know, that's that's what I love about. The world of inquiry, you know, if you're curious, there yeah, are many things yeah. to know. And oh, almost, yeah. And just as interestingly, there are many things that no one knows yet. I, I love that. Yeah, it's fun true. to find, try to find out. <laughs> and on that, 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 that's one more thing, because uh, you talked about Jonathan Haidt's modal foundation theory. It's something else that um, he, he uses a lot of Indian uh, context in that. Now, uh, it's, it's not really, well, uh, excuse me, it's not... It's not exactly uh, what's going on here. It's it's it, it takes place in Orissa, which is kind of uh, which is in the northern part of India, and um, I think it's it's a bit dated. But yeah, it would be true in a rural sense. But uh, the more interesting fact is is his idea of there being this this universal model uh, taste like structure, right? So uh, he mentions six factors, or was That's it? Right. Yeah, he mentions six. And um, each each culture would have their own mix of, uh, of of these views based on how they were raised, based on the societal factors, and um, all, all all of those things. And um, and I and, and I wondered about that and Noam Chomsky's view of uh, linguistics, because uh, he talks about babies uh, having this sense of language already in them, all languages in them at birth, uh, as opposed to a blank slate. And um, then their parents, when they talk to them in their native language, they they, they grasp that particular thread of of the huge language, uh, the yeah. the, um, the universal grammar that they already have, and and then they uh, catch on to that. But while they are young, it's easy to teach them uh, all the other languages. Now I know it's not a strict paddle, but but it made me wonder because the, the connection seemed to me to be <laughs> pretty fun to think of. But yes, yeah, so. Is moral foundations theory uh, uh, a good descriptor of why we are moral, or is it just uh, uh, an idea of, well, this might be how we, we came to be moral instead of why we ought to be a, a particular way? 
I, um, I don't think it's either of those things. I mean, I, I think it's a, a really interesting and helpful typology of of moral of the moral factors that human beings tend to be sensitive to. Um, it's it's uh, I don't know. Yeah, it just it's cre- it creates an interesting way of sorting through aspects of moral reality. Um, and shows how they're some of them maybe related to each other and, and things that are sort of like spectra or binaries. Um, and it seems like a, a uh, empirically useful you know, classification for thinking about different specific cultural moralities. Like, oh, these, this group focuses on two of the six and this group focuses yeah, on four yeah. of the six and yeah. ways to help us kind of classify and understand differences between um, moral systems. Respect and honor s- would be huge here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because- Yeah, respect and honor respect. Would, be, yeah. would be huge where I grew up in the, in the southeastern part of the US, less so kind of in urban centers. Um, right, right. And, uh, but it, I, I don't see that it really tells us anything about why morality is as it is. I mean, there we have to get into like, I mean, maybe Jonathan Hyde does this, I can't remember. Maybe he tries to say, Here's how each of these six, you know, moral moral taste buds um, conferred an adaptive advantage. He may try that. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, no, but you know, I, the trouble with that is, that, like I said before, the trouble with all yeah, evolutionary yeah. explanations, it, um, it can be anything, um, uh, or it can work either way. So I don't know. I, I think it's. I think he's made a genuine discovery that's very interesting, right. and it's so yeah, such a recent yeah. discovery. The implications yeah. still aren't fully clear. We'll have to keep thinking about it. Uh, it might help in conflict resolution, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, I think, and I, what's interesting to me is, I don't think it was, as a result of discovering this, he claims that it's made him more sympathetic with political conservatives in the yeah. US. Yeah, I heard Because that. he's yeah. realized yeah. they're just kind of operating on different taste buds than the progressives are. Uh, and... Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting observation. Um, there's still the, the the deeper question of well, you know, who's right, you know, and does it does a yeah, correct view of reality right require all that, six? Yeah. Maybe yeah. so. Um, some yeah. So that's the yeah. level one, right? That's the level one you talked about, and that, it's not reaching level one at all. Yeah. There's no way that's in which right. it can. Uh, there's no way in which it becomes an arbiter of anything. It's just well, and he, you know, in making the classification, this is interesting. He has to decide what what phenomena count as properly moral to make the, to, to classify a system. And I don't oh, yeah. remember what his methodology is here. He might just say, what do human beings call moral? And then see how, how um, elegantly those can be divided up into categories. That may be what he does. Um, but just because somebody says something is moral, doesn't mean that it is. Uh, but in terms of, of a descriptive level, it's still, I think, I think his, his moral foundations theory is, is really interesting. It's, a gigantic discovery, I think, that I think every you know everyone working in the field needs to be interacting with and will right, repay a right. lot of more careful thought. A lot of evolutionary scientists seem to start with this idea of, of ethics and then work their way back to epistemology and uh, maybe but not a vague idea of metaphysics because uh, Jordan Peterson seems to work in that uh, level as well. It's, he seems to start with uh, an ethical level, a practical level, and then he seems to uh, work from there to an 
epistemological level or, or maybe even a metaphysical level, although that's, I guess, vague for him. Yeah. Um, I haven't noticed that, but I haven't thought about it. You may be right. Um, and you're saying like, you're just kind of remarking on this, like what this, this thing that seems to keep happening. Starting yeah, with because, the ethical because, and then going back. Yeah. And, a friend of mine and I were discussing and um, he talked about this and I got interested and I checked out Dr. Peterson's arguments about uh, evolution in his Oxford lecture and meaning and, and telos. And it seemed to me to be the case that, that he seems to start with the idea of ethics on a practical level, how that works. And then he moves back from there to epistemology and maybe a rough idea of metaphysics, although well, that's not really true. While if you look at the ancients, uh, maybe the Augustinian view and all of that, you start with uh, a metaphysic and then you come back from that to uh, yeah. ethics, right? So, so. Um, maybe, I'm just speculating here, but my guess would be that for for Peterson and for plenty of others who walk that path, you know, metaphysics has fallen into um, disrepute. You know, in, yeah, in you mentioned that. Was, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things, um, like religion, where we can't agree and it can't be settled by empirical methods, um, and it's become it's come to be seen as impractical. Uh, but logically, it's the foundation for any view of reality. And so, I wonder if when people start trying to, to provide explanations, they start moving toward metaphysics. Um, because ultimately, if you're asking like where everything came from and what explains what, when you get down to that bottom level, you're, you're yeah. we're getting close to the bottom level, you're doing metaphysics. So I, I wonder if it's just, if you are curious and you're trying to trace the path of explanation back, you're heading toward metaphysics at that point. Right, um, right. But that's just a, a, a guess. That may not be a good explanation of why, yeah. why it keeps happening. Right, Dr. Paul Netlisky, Dr. Paul Netlisky. I've had a lot of fun talking with you. It was it was really awesome. <laughs> I, got, I have too, Kira. Thank, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been great. Um, yeah, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Such a such an interesting <laughs> conversation. Thank you. Talk to you about a whole lot of stuff. So yeah, thank you. And um, uh, I never really thought I'd get through all of this. And I had a lot of questions to you. I thought we might have to well uh, do it in the typical half an hour one hour thing but you were so gracious uh, that we, we went on for i don't know two hours i guess i mean when we <laughs> covered the range of i have no idea what but uh, we were I, I really loved the discussion with your book and all of that so it's been such an encouragement and i and i really thank you doc, dr paul netliski for coming on to the podcast and i hope that it helps a lot of people so yeah thank you Kieran. it's been my pleasure to be here i thank you for having me on thank you thank you doctor